out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, playing the finest in indie pop and beyond. And also, we love a special guest. Yes, we do. This week, it is going to be the turn of Balam and the Angel because I spoke to Jim Morris very recently to find out about life in a rock, goth, glam metal band all the way from Birmingham and much, much more. This is the interview and after several minutes of babbling and chatting and slowly getting to know each other, We started talking about that exciting world that was the early 80s and um, the fact that a lot of bands that I've interviewed had that period of unemployment during those early Thatcher years. After that riveting statement I made, this was Jim's response. Jim, it's over to you. Save this show now. Me, myself and my two brothers, um, we came, we've brought up in the world of work. You know, we came from school to working. I went to, I was at the time that the band was really starting to flourish and become something more than just a local act. I was teaching then. I was teaching at St. John Wall's School in Hansworth in Birmingham. My two brothers were working at the time. They were both working. My uh, Des, the drummer, was uh, worked for the gas board as a fitter. And Mark worked for Caterpillar uh, Working with heavy earth-moving equipment, so we we were we we were working and touring and playing and all of the stuff that was happening in the early eighties, uh, all in one go. Yes, and before that, I mean, because I'm sort of not to give too much away, but I was born in the mid sixties, and I sort of yeah. I suppose had that kind of that typical sort of I don't know early at those early years of watching Top of the Pops in the early 70s and being obsessed with people like The Sweet and um, I suppose I have to confess people like Gary Glitter I thought was very exciting and then you know there was the David Bowie moment seeing him on Space Oddity but you know Top of the Pops on a Thursday was a really big thing and seeing Alice Cooper doing Schools Out was obviously kind of like wow that's an amazing song and then you know listen to Top of the Pops on the radio on a um, spooky, on a on a Sunday evening was kind of big. So, what were, were you in those teen years? What were you, were you sort of, you know, sort of obsessed about the the charts and top of the pops? Of course, I mean, my brothers and myself came through a family with my my parents who loved music. Um, they weren't necessarily musicians themselves. As young kids, we learned to play instruments. And in our early teens, we were playing, um, before we actually started Balaam, um, playing music in working men's clubs around the West Midlands area, which is where we were brought up. Yes. So we would actually be playing, you know, every weekend at one stage, once we, when we'd become popular in the working men's clubs, and we would go out and we would play, you know, the, the current hits to... Working men's clubs in those days were were, were 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 a big thing. They were they were very busy. There was lots of people in them, and you would be playing to packed audiences of people who'd come out to have a good time on a Friday or a Saturday night. So, our background musically kind of started there. Um, but our our 
our kind of creative uh, side really began when, you know, the punk era happened. So around about 76, the Clash and the Sex Pistols, it all sounds quite, you know, cla- classic and, and, and straightforward, but th- those were the bands that really got us going on the idea that actually this was a time for us to start writing and creating our own music. Uh, and that's what uh, we started to do. We we we, we took on the, um, the 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 sort of way in which they 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 were basically saying things have to change and you have to do something original and unique. And we tried to do something original and unique for ourselves. Yes, because I I sort of my brother was about seven years older than me, and he he introduced me to that world of both prog rock and a bit of heavy metal, yeah. and um, that sort of had a, quite an influence until sort of the late seventies, because I was a little bit too young to really appreciate the wonders of of that sort of Sex Pistols moment, probably in seventy seven, seventy eight. So, what were your sort of early early sort of musical kind of records that you sort of consumed with great enthusiasm? Yeah, yeah. Well, the one of the interesting stories from that period was we bought the Clash White Riot and put it on in in, in our front room uh, with my parents kind of in earshots and you couldn't really understand any of the lyrics so that was all okay because of course you know it was all about being a bit revolutionary as well and and being a bit kind of sort of uh, realizing yourself as a teenager. Um, and then the next week we bought Orgasm Addict by the Buscocks and every single word was absolutely blatantly clear, you know, and that was something my parents were just not ha- not happy with us playing in the front room. Um, so those were the kind of records we were buying uh, and we would club together, the three of us, uh, with our pocket money at the time and go out and buy, re- really consume what the NME was promoting as the, the, the record of the week and the singles they were pushing and the albums they were pushing. So we would be buying everything that came through that kind of medium. And it was all The Damned, it was Sex Pistols, it was The Clash, it was um, Patti Smith was another big, you know, another big kind of uh, act that we were really hooked on at the time. Uh, talking Heads, Early Days. Those yes. were the kind of bands. Uh, but it is funny because in those days as well, when you lived in a, a provincial town, uh, you would be going out on a Friday or a Saturday night and it would be a, it would be a mixture. It's a cross-pollination of the kind of thin, lazy rock fraternity and the kids who'd latched on to a bit of the clash and the the pistols and and also interestingly interestingly enough coming from Canuck in Staffordshire you had a band like Slade who my brother Des had been to see he went in the same week he went to see both Slade and then later on in the week he saw the clash and he to this day compares the two of them as almost one and the same thing they were equally as loud equally as powerful you know equally as punk rock um, the you know so they, they've there's always been that sort of point at which things are different but still a little bit the same as well you know yes uh, well, I... still, it's still based in kind of making loud raw energetic music for 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 people who want to you know have a good time 
Yes, well, I was I was a huge Motorhead fan and loved Lemmy, and I know that he yeah. started every concert with, you know, we're Motorhead and we play rock and roll. And it's interesting because yeah. whenever Mo, um, Lemmy or David Bowie were interviewed, they were born in the same year, and you know, asked the sort of you know the question, what was your sort of main musical influence? Both said Little Richard, so it was kind of everything right. was based in sort of rock and roll in that in that way. So during that kind of early eighties period, obviously you you were sort of drawn a little bit more to the kind of gothic rock kind of mm-hmm. kind of world than anything else. But do you, but in the Midlands, because there's all those, there's loads of indie bands, weren't there? Like um, we've got a fuzz box and we're going to use it and, yeah. and the very things and the nightingales. And then you had the mo, um, the two-tone scene. So, yeah. so um, yes, but then you also had Black Sabbath. My God, Black yeah. Sabbath. So, so where were... So and those where, bands that you, you, you're talking about there came a little bit later than what the point at which we were really starting to function as a as a creative uh band. So the very first release from Alarm and the Angel was in it was in eighty four. Um so people like and people like the Mighty Mighty and the Nightingales as you say, Fuzzbox, they're all a little bit later than that period. Uh they came through as a kind of midland scene along with the Poppies and Nesatomic Dustbin. Um, at a point, you know, maybe two, three, four years after 1984 um, had had happened, you know. Yes, well, absolutely. But I sort of did an interview with, um, was it? Uh, oh, yes, the 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 guy, the people, the couple from Alien Sex Fiend. So they then they were sort of talking about the whole kind of world that they had been sort of getting into. So were you sort of also slightly drawn, slightly drawn to those people like Susan the Banshees and the Cure and that kind of look and image? Oh God, yeah, you know, there's absolutely no doubt about that. And there was a, a massive Futurama on uh, around about '82. I can't remember exactly the date in Bingley Hall in Stafford, and Bauhaus played there, and Theatre of Hate played there, and we went along. And it was one of those concerts that 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 was a game changer in terms of where we were wanting to move in terms of the sound we wanted to create. And seeing and being part of that experience with those bands certainly moved us in a in a direction where the, the, we were looking to looking to find the dark edges in the kind of music that we were making. Yes, absolutely. Because with most bands that I've interviewed, especially those kind of 80s ones, I mean, they do have a five-year narrative, you know, where they get together, they make a sound. And like you said, you had the Working Men's Clubs, which was um, must have been really good to sort of learn. A bit like going to the Beatles going to Hamburg, you know, you had to sort of learn, learn how to play. Um, did you sort of do covers? I keep thinking of status quo here, by the way. But did you have yeah. to sort of <laughs> kind of keep the crowd happy by giving them what they want? Absolutely. At the Working Man's Club period of of my my me and my brother's uh, musical sort of uh, lineage is was really about playing cover cover music to Friday and Saturday night crowds. That was yes. basically what we were doing. We we were learning our trade in terms of being musicians uh, and you know earning some money out of it and setting ourselves up for what we wanted to do, what 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 it ended up, we ended up wanting to do when we actually formed Balaam and the Angel and wanted to do something that was more creative uh, and something that was satisfied our musical uh, perspective a bit more. 
Yes, because that's it. Yes, the the five year, you know, where where people get, have got together, they had that kind of year, and and at that stage, I mean, a lot of them weren't working, so that that slightly helped in in sort of rehearsals and practice, and then sort of a, a John Peel play would give them that kind of wow moment, and then a John Peel session, and then that first album. And then things were often going quite well until the second album. But um, so how did you all, you know... But you've, your... but you've got an interesting dynamic with, with, with those as well, because we're three brothers. And we, you know, we lived together, ate together, went out together. Did everything. From, from the moment we were kids, you know, we, we've, we've sort of made music together, made different kinds of music, developed as we were in terms of trying to be creative in the way that we did. You know, there's a uniqueness to that that actually there aren't many acts around that can that have that kind of background, um, and I think it is something that was really strong in the story of the band that hasn't always come out uh, quite as much as perhaps it might have done. Yes, and and quite unbelievable, really, isn't it? Kind of yeah. those the family dynamic, you know, which is kind of well documented with other people and bands. And and interesting enough, you were going to be touring, weren't you, with um, yeah. Gene Loves Jezebel. And I know those brothers don't particularly get on either, do they? So there was, um, you know, and, and obviously you had the Oasis thing. So how did that work out? I mean, obviously, you know, there are bands who, you know, if there's three members and two are a couple, that that's the voting rights, you know, are going to be horrendous. I'm thinking of Galaxy 500 here. Um, but there were, there were other bands who who sort of, yeah, so how did it feel for the the person who wasn't in the family? Yeah, I mean, at, at the very initial, con, you know, the very initial stage of being, you know, Balaam and the Angel, it was just me, Mark and Des, it was just the three of us. You know, we appeared on the Tube in 84, just the three of us. It, we were a three-man band. It was only as uh, our uh, sound expanded that we brought in some some additional musicians to work with us uh, uh, for a period of time. We had a girl called Wendy Harper who came and played keyboards with us, and then later on, we when we expanded the sound into a much more uh, rock style, uh, a great, absolutely fantastic guitarist called Ian McKeon joined us. Um, uh, when we sort of expanded into going to America and touring America. Uh, uh, and then since then, uh, we've, we've, we, we, we're back and playing again now. So we've been working with a fantastic keyboard player called Chris Williams, who has, has, has been playing with us for a while. Um, I guess, what does it feel like for them? Uh, I, I guess they have to answer that question. It is, it is a challenge when, when me and my two brothers get started and we can often have some very, uh, heated uh, uh, rows and discussions uh, and people can feel left out of those situations um, but I think we're quite a family orientated group and, and actually I think one of the benefits of that is people feel brought into a kind of family unit more so than if they're in a, a band with three other mates. Yes, well, absolutely. And did it take, um, I know I was talking to, it was Fast Eddie from Motorhead, and he said it did take a while for them to sort of get a sound that 
was a bit more special than just sounding like a sort of a pub rock band. And they were just about to give it up because, you know, they thought, well, actually, we're still not going anywhere. So we'll just do a few more dates at the marquee. And, and someone said, let's record it. And then suddenly things started to happen and they, they started to create something a bit more unique. Did it take a while for you to, to create the sort of the sound that you thought, actually, this is a bit more special and we're going to be able to play beyond that usual sort of like friends, family and anybody else you can emotionally blackmail to come and see you? <laughs> No, no, yeah, yeah. I would put the point at which we really started to seriously think about um, being having a band that was playing its own music. Uh, at the time, I, I'd been to music college. I went to London College of Music and studied classical guitar for three years, and it was at the point where I'd finished doing that. Uh, I'd come back to Birmingham uh, and. Uh, me and my two brothers got back together and thought this is about the time. That was around about 81, 82. So there was three years before we got to the first release proper um, from the band. And, you know, that was us experimenting to find the, the sound that we were happy with and the, and the sound that best represented what we were trying to uh, put across in terms of... Uh, Pulling together all of our various uh, uh, inspirations uh, into something that we thought was something that was uniquely us rather than just sounding like them. Yes, because you'd gone from sort of being on that, you know, a label, uh, Chapter 22, which is all sort of quite groovy and, and probably nice. He says, because that was actually Mighty Mighty, wasn't it? Who were just awesome. Um, and, and lots of those kind of bands. They, they, can, can I just correct you there? Chapter 22 was started by Balaam the Angel and, and, their, and our manager, Craig Jennings, to release Balaam the Angel songs. We, we funded that whole thing. And Chapter 22 then became a vehicle that Craig was able to um, uh, use to support a whole load of middle acts and a whole load of other acts like The Mission released their first uh, single on Chapter 22. And it all came about as a result of uh, us setting it up, and at a point when we signed to Virgin, uh, we uh, invested some of that uh, capital that we got from our advance into the record label to allow us to develop some of the acts who were coming through um, in terms of uh, the Midland scene. So yes. that's how that, that's how that kind of happened. That's the lineage of it. The very first Chapter 22 single was... World of Light by Balaam and the Angel. And it was from that point onwards that the record label developed. I mean, I can't take credit for the way in which it developed. That's very much the case of Craig Jennings working with nine, the Nine Mile distributors at Leicester. Um, but where it was, was we, we as I say, uh, 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 you know, funded and supported it financially over uh, at a certain period in time. And also were connected with some of the bands who eventually released on Chapter 22 as well. Mighty Lemon Drops were friends of ours. In, um, sorry, I'm not sure if Mighty Lemon Drops actually uh, uh, released on Chapter 22. Uh, the Wildflowers were a band who released on Chapter 22 who we, who came from the Midland scene. We were familiar yes. with Mighty Mighty and, you know, Buzzbox and people like that, you know, and, and they came through, um, you know... Again, I think I've, I've gone off. I've gone off track a bit there because Fuzzbox never released on Chapter Twenty Two. But you know, they were all part of a, a scene that we were we we 
were no longer in because we were on a different tra- trajectory from those from those groups, if you know what I mean. Yes. Uh, our kind of sort of uh, uh, Banshee's cure being part of the goth scene with the cult and the mission, you know, took us in a different direction stylistically. Um, but there was a really strong Midland scene uh, that included uh, Populate itself and included the Wonder Stuff. Uh, and yes. you know, we were happy to, to be part of whatever we did to help that along. Blimey, you did actually. Chapter 22, I just, I, yeah. actually, I just had a look and it was quite awesome. Yes, yeah. it's one of those labels, isn't it? You think, oh my God, yes, of course, it all comes back. A bit like yeah. one of the, But actually, it's much more prolific than 53rd and 3rd records and some of the yeah. other ones. But um, yes, the Midland scene, which, yes, we, we grew to love so much. But then, you know, because when you went on to Virgin in the mid 60s, mid 80s, and yes, because I remember speaking to a couple of people um, from, there was Red Guitars and Railway Children. And they'd done, you know, the first album they did on, on a sort of an indie and it was good. Well, they loved it. And then they went to Virgin and, and that was kind of the beginning of the end, the second album. So how did you cope with sort of being on a major at that stage? Yeah, I, I, we enjoyed the transitioning from the three... We had released three four-track 12-inch singles on Chapter 22... We had had some significant success with those. They, you know, the NME chart used to be uh, an important uh, uh, a kind of uh, way of recognizing how well you were doing if you weren't a main, an absolute mainstream act. So all three of those had been number one in the NME chart. Uh, and we were doing very well in terms of picking up uh, uh, lots of good live following. We'd been on the tube in '84, and uh, we felt we were set and ready for for to cross over to a, a, a wider audience. And the opportunity to work with Virgin was something that we uh, really embraced. Uh, we were fortunate enough to have had a choice of a couple of record labels at the time who who were wanting to pick us up. Arista was another label who were at the same time in competition, if you like, with Virgin. Uh, we wanted to go to Virgin because of the connection with uh, the Sex Pistols. And uh, we thought Virgin were a, were a good company. Yes. You know, they, 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 we didn't really have any... We, you know, We're not that kind of band where we went to a major label and suddenly we were being told what to do. Um, we negotiated... Uh, a contract and a deal that left a lot of the decision making with us and um you know with all the financial support that comes with a major label so i guess it, it was it was the it'd be churlish to turn around and say you know if we didn't weren't as successful as perhaps we hoped we might be that somehow that was at the fault of the record label um and I, I don't think I don't think necessarily it was, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I think they just. I think the second album often hits a few bands because yeah. they by then they're sort of I don't know things have happened. 
dynamics. Yeah. But also, yes, the, sometimes the lack of money is also starting to get on people's. And you also mentioned the other thing that often finished people off is the tour of America, yeah. you know, where, where they come. People often said, "And we toured America, and then we split up." But you obviously yeah. didn't have that experience so much. No, either, either. And the funny kind of thing about when you're saying about the second album, yeah, I, th I think that a second album does is is a challenge. But in reality, our first album proper really was the album we released for Virgin when we signed to them. We'd, we'd just done those three 12-inch singles on Chapter 22. And whilst there is an album that came out called Sun Family, that really was a collection of those three 12-inch singles plus a couple of additional tracks that we released um, slightly ahead of us releasing the Great Story Ever Told album on Virgin. So our, our first album proper really was, was the Great Story Ever Told for Virgin Records. Um, and, and if anything, our, 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 our challenging album was the one that came after that, which was the Live Free or Die album. But in reality, that wasn't, that, that, that was, that, that continued the success of the band, although it took us in a very different direction because sonically and the way we sounded, we were moving from something that was much more of an alternative indie sound to something that was a bit more uh, hard-edged sort of rock-style sound in, in, in the way that the cult had gone. You know, we, they, they had developed and we had kind of gone in that same direction. Yes, because I know that um, I'm always amazed when I listen to a band uh, called the Chameleons from Manchester. Yeah. But they've got that kind of very big guitar sound. I mean, there isn't, a, you know, though they get put in the indie camp. You just think, actually, yeah. this is kind of more, this is so different sort of sonically and kind of just, it's a big sound, isn't it? Like, you know, a band like Mighty Mighty or, you know, we've got Fuzzbox. You know, they're just going to be yeah. the art. Let's face it, they're brilliant, but they they are art centre material, really. <laughs> whereas, you know, the whereas, you know, like the Cold, and, and yourselves and uh, people like the chameleons were, were obviously like looking at a bigger audience. You're looking at arenas, really, weren't you? So were you at that stage looking at the big picture a bit like, you know, people like Simple Minds and you too? I mean, look, it's an interesting thing to say that we were looking to expand to a bigger audience. I, I, get, I, I kind of get that people want to think about it like that. We were looking to explore a, a sound that... Um, we had in our heads that we didn't think we'd achieved with our earlier material, and that was to create something that uh, was a a little bit noisier. Um, and as a result of that, it, it it broadened out the sound, and 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 actually broadened out potentially the the the, the number of people who may have been interested in what we were doing. Um, I don't think we were ever. I don't think we've ever really looked at. I don't because a because I don't think you can um, guarantee that if I do this, then that the, this next thing's going to happen. Um, and and b because we we we're just so keen on music and we soak up so much music that actually all we were trying to do was to to, to actually move towards a sound that. Um, got got the, the the type of sound that we felt we'd been aiming for but hadn't yet quite achieved. So the Live Free or Die album came out being a much noisier, uh, guitar-driven album than The Great Story Ever Told, which had very much been uh, an album with 
are much lighter sounds and a whole range of instruments uh, as part of the the, the kind of uh, arsenal of sounds that were going on on the album, you know. Yes. It, 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 it just so happens that at that time, uh, on the cusp of... Uh, uh, releasing the great story ever told, and then and then live free or die. That the Virgin Records, who had not been in, a, they did not have a, they were not positioned in America at all. They were still a a British company, had decided that they wanted to launch Virgin, you know, USA, and we came over with them in a, to a certain extent as one of the first five or six bands. Uh, to spearhead uh, their campaign to to get a foothold in the American market. Yes, and then I mean, and also your sort of art direction was definitely changing as well, wasn't it? You yeah. were just you were definitely going for a quite a a rock look. Yeah, it was it was it was pretty full on. Did you feel comfortable? You know, I mean, I don't know what it was like at the time, and and when you look back at the the album and the, and the style, do you, do yeah. you think, wow, we you were really going for rock? Look, I, I think it's. I think you look back and it's crazy. I mean, with myself, Mark, and Des, the initial images of the band, the look that we had, um, with this sort of what people used to call the pajama look, you know. But it was Vivian Westwood. It was flouncy. It was very much in the we're an alternative band. Uh, we. Uh, uh, have a, a certain position within a scene that, that was the goth scene at the time. Um, and then the way in which our look developed, which became much more of a, a kind of mainstream biker leather look. Um, they're almost two worlds apart, but but for us, it didn't seem like we were going, you know, we were just transitioning into something that interested us. Uh, uh, you know, I think, I think, I think it's um, one of the challenges that our, our fans perhaps have, or the people outside of the band have, that we we could look and sound, in essence, so so different, you know. Yeah, because the one thing, you know, because at the start I was talking about that kind of five years, the '83 to '87, which was that kind of very indie world that um, you know was also the years of the Smiths. But then, you know, like a lot of the bands I've interviewed, um, you know, that it comes. A lot of them sort of came to a bit of an end towards that, you know, 87, 88. Yeah. And part of that was kind of the change of the, I suppose it was the drug culture and the sort of the world of the dance scene, which was, you know, like that baggy sand with the soup dragons mm. and happy Mondays and stone roses and, and, and all that kind of world started to appear. So a lot of the bands like the go-betweens and, and not the go-betweens, the June brides and the wolf hands. And so, you know, like, yeah, all that kind of jingly sand, you know, was like actually no one cares anymore. It's moved on. Did you ever sort of have that kind of a feeling with with yourself, you know, having to sort of look at the sort of the current trends thinking, blimey, where do we fit into this? Because I know a few people who didn't split up then, like Carter, the Unstoppable Sex Machine, or those some of those North London bands like, you know, My Bloody Valentine and, and sort of slightly obscure ones like Silverfish and the Faith Healers, you know, they and Lush. They kind of had to sort of get through it a bit, you know, and then go, oh, blimey, we're, we're almost a bit grungy. People quite like us. And then suddenly... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just yeah. You know, so, how was that kind of world also sort of, you know, playing playing out with your sort of you know next album, so to speak? 
Yeah, I, 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 I think we had gone off on the, a particular uh, sonic exploration that, that had taken us a, away from the kinds of bands that you are talking about. And, that, and even that kind of sort of scene was a scene that we were very aware of was taking place. But we were now so much in a different direction that we didn't even have to play pay lip service to that kind of type of sound in order to maintain the type of band that we were if that makes any sense do you know what i mean yes i know there were some you know there were some bands who just didn't sort of yeah go with it so then when you were doing no more innocence which then you know obviously baggy had had its day grunge was big yeah. and Britpop had you were you were sort of back onto a sort of a, a, a different label yeah did you were you beginning to feel the kind of because you'd almost been going for not quite a decade but quite a sizable period of time? Oh yeah, you, it was it was almost a decade. By, by the time we did release Prime Time, that was ninety three, and if you chart that from eighty four when we released the uh, very very first uh, Chapter Twenty Two release, that's that's nine years. And uh, yeah, I, I'm not quite sure what your question was, but that we'd had a, a good a good period of time playing and being a band yes but i was just kind of because obviously you'd left virgin then and yep. and i was just wondering when you were recording those al- those last those albums from the early 90s what what the you know the not the state of the band were but were you sort of feeling tired or were you feeling still kind of excited by it all we made music because we were excited by the music we were making. We we stopped making music after uh, the primetime album because we weren't the we didn't feel between myself and my two brothers that we had the uh, interest in creating new music that we'd had previously, and we were in a position where we all felt that perhaps we could go off and do some other things as it happens outside of the music industry altogether um, in order to give us an opportunity to revitalize ourselves and, 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 you know, get a, get a, a kind of new perspective and a new love for something that we'd always really held very special and very dear, which is making some new music. Yes. So when you were recording, prime time did you yeah. feel like it was you know when you were you know starting to write it and then go in the studio did you feel like it was the last album that for that period no not necessarily but i think it, what emerged out of that was the feeling that uh we had written what we considered to be a, a, an album worth worth um a listen and we were struggling to get um, the attention that get it the attention that we felt it deserved. I think we'd, as bands do, had had, had dropped away in terms of people taking notice and and feeling that you were current or relevant anymore. And it didn't seem logical for us to just simply keep beating on that drum. Uh, you know, in a, you know, to the to to the to the extent that we would perhaps felt we might need to, and even then, perhaps we we could never beat it loud enough. You know, there would a time would come again at some point um, 
when people would revisit us and think about us again and it would be we would have an opportunity to you know uh at that point to to maybe make some more music and and, and start start being uh current again you know current's the wrong kind of word you know oh we yes. think of, what's his name i'll take that you know uh when we talk about these kinds of things what's his name um gary barlow it's a gary barlow moment isn't it you know you can't be top forever. I mean, I'm not suggesting we were top, but, you know, you can't be everyone's flavor of the month forever. There for sure is going to be a period of time in any musical career where you're the old thing, the last thing, you know, the thing that's out. Um, but it's about finding that time some point in the future where you can actually... Uh, begin to make music again because actually you enjoy it and 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 people have a have become receptive again to actually listening to the 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 problem with the primetime album was I don't think there were people really giving it a, a list a listen you know it, we weren't being able to get people to have a you know ha, have a look at it uh, and and really think about what was on the uh, the record rather than what they felt about the band and where we stood in the uh, current scene you know yes well actually it's interesting because um, I know speaking to the primitives and actually the mighty lemon drops because they'd done both done quite a lot of albums and they said that when they released their last one just no one it wasn't just the music press it was like even the fans weren't that bothered either and i think that's when they thought actually we need to go and move on from this did you yeah. did, did you have a moment with the band or your brothers where you sort of uh, kind of drew a sort of line underneath that chapter and said look let's stop this rather than or just not turn up one day. That would be difficult with brothers, though, isn't it, really? That would be impossible. No, we absolutely had to have the moment where we sat down and went, let's look each other in the eye and just talk about this and say, we've done a good job here. This is, you know, we've got it to this point. If we continue, we are flogging a dead horse for a period of time. We have to accept that what's what where we're at, where, where in terms of our currency at the moment, uh, we don't have the currency that we would like to have in terms of even going out to play uh, live shows was 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 something that had always been a solid part of the Balam and the Angel uh, experience was starting to be less uh, successful. Um, and again, as 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 it happens with all people, going back to that story about uh, Slade and the Clash. My brother had been, went to, the, both of the gigs were on at uh, Wolverhampton Civic Hall in the same week. The Clash was absolutely bombed out, you know, could hardly get a ticket. Slade in the same week, probably played to a couple of hundred people, you know. Yes. Uh, because but, everyone has their moment in time, you know. Yeah, it is kind of strange, actually. I mean, you know, because obviously having that experience and now sort of doing the band and doing the new album, do you sometimes look at those other, some of those artists and, and you know, things like people like Lemmy from Motorhead and people like David Bowie come to mind and, and uh, certain bands as well, as well as you too. Are you kind of amazed that they were able to keep it kind of going the way they did? No, I'm not necessarily amazed. I, you know, I, they 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 are both acts that you would you would say 
deserve deserve to continue to have the attention that they they got. Uh, certainly, David Bowie, because he was transforming and changing to ensure that people uh, the interest in in what he was doing was kept uh, alive. And um, no, certainly, certainly with acts like that, you know, I I I would I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised that they they continued, but. There are many good acts, many massive acts who have had their moments as well. I mean, and 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 come through those to to continue to do a lot of uh, a lot of new material that people like, you know. Yeah, and did you have a? I mean, what was it like emotionally when you sort of realised you weren't part of that band anymore? Because because I know a few people were sort of mentioned you know like cutting off their hair and walking around for six months in a depressed state how did you sort of um deal with that next chapter yes i embraced that idea of getting on and doing something new and different i i we i think my brothers and me are quite uh i'm trying to think what the word is where you just see things for what they are and just get on with whatever it is that you've got to do you know um we knew something we knew that we we were able to be happy that we'd had a really good career up until that point we'd had you know nine years or more depending on how much before 84 you think the band was going you know to be playing and touring and doing stuff and releasing music and we'd had a really good enjoyable experience doing that for sure, you know something. Had things be different, of course, everyone would love to keep that that experience going forever and ever and ever. But that's not the world for the majority of bands. It isn't. No, you know, it's it's, a, it's the world for a small percentage of acts like David Bowie and or whoever else we might want to think about who can maintain a career for for you know for as long as they want and. You know, we were able. To, we were quite happy to ex- accept that our time and, and for that period and that moment had, had had come to an end. But that we would, because we were brothers, because we had this connection, that that time would come again at some point in the future, and we we would you know look to embrace it when that opportunity came. And then, fortunately enough, in the last five or six years, we've had the opportunity to go out and play. We've had the opportunity to be part of a, a kind of sort of return of some of the, the acts that we were familiar with who, who were current with us. We've enjoyed connect, reconnecting with our audience. We've had the opportunity to connect with what, what you may call the music industry in terms of releasing an album and doing the stuff that has come about over the last four or five years. So that's all been an enjoyable part of a kind of resurfacing uh, as far as we're concerned. Yes, and what was the when, or what was the moment when the the subject was broached that you you know to get back and you know have a go? Because over those years, you must have obviously bumped into each other, and, yeah. and um, not mentioned the idea, or someone mentioned it, and the other two said no. But then one day, all three went, "Oh yes." Yeah, we'd had somebody who'd been knocking on our door quite a few times. He's a guy who runs flag promotions called Frank uh, Drake. And Frank had been insistent that, you know, were we to want to play again, that he would guarantee that actually there was a there was an audience out there who were, you know, keen to see us 
and actually that doing some shows would be a, a really good idea. And I, I think he'd been persistent over a couple of years with that, and eventually we decided that you know actually maybe 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 he has got a, a, a vision of perception of what people want. And actually, you know, maybe we should take him up on the offer. So that's kind of what we did. And and, and actually, you know, that was the start of a, a return to playing much more live. And, uh, you know, eventually leading on to, to the uh, That's Not The Real World album, which, which really is a live recording of one of the shows that we did at the uh, Islington O2 Academy. Yes. And were, and were you nervous at first, thinking... This this could this could be this could go either way, you know. Oh, yeah, no, for sure. You know, it, of course, you know, we we had stepped out of the limelight, and we had been getting on with regular, you know, work and keeping our you know keeping ourselves afloat, as you know from earlier on. You know, I'm, I'm I've I've made my way through the uh, career of being a, a teacher. Uh, I started off being a head of music, of course, uh, in a school in uh, in Hackney, and have gradually worked my way through the sort of uh, education world. Um, my brothers similarly have had their trajectories in the in the different worlds outside of that. So, the idea that we could come back from that and actually be standing on stage in front of audiences of people who would still remember us even, uh, given that we're, we were probably talking about fi- at least 15 years since we'd last stepped on stage, it was obviously a nervous moment for us. Yes. And did it all, because again, some people went, oh God, I don't even know what the chords were. You know, they can just about get the lyrics. Did you sort of have all that quite well, you know, like archived so you didn't have to struggle too much? Uh, we had to sit down and we had to do some rehearsing, of course, you know, because we had, you know, there are bits of what you used to do that you can't always remember, you know, completely. And that was also part of the fun and joy of coming back to doing some live work. Yes. Re engaging with, with actually doing some rehearsing because, hey, you know, there are a number of things about being a band that are really fun, or at least they should be. And, you know, rehearsing is one of them you know being in a room and turning the volume up and you know knocking out a load of tunes for three or four hours is a, is a, is a lovely experience yes absolutely because i know it was quite interesting that passing of time and i know you you were saying that's more 15 years because i know last year there was two books that came out on sort of fanzines from sort of 30 years ago and i was thinking god it's interesting because probably for about 25 years we would have been just you know coming across them and throwing them in, in the recycling at yeah. least and then suddenly someone like suddenly stops and goes no no they're really amazing archives we must document them put them in museums museums and all that kind of stuff plus you know there, there's a lot of people doing films at the moment you're probably aware of like you know the chills of the go-betweens the slits the dolly mixture you know do do you sort of sort of also look at your own sort of archives and think actually yeah we've got quite a lot of good stuff here yeah no you know i think again you'd have to be you know look at the end of the day we love what we do i guess every band looks at their stuff and goes you know something what we did was bloody great, wasn't it? You know, it's a shame we weren't better known and we weren't more successful and all the rest of it. I wonder, you know, how much 
doing as going down the road of archiving stuff and all the rest of it isn't really for the band's purpose rather than for everybody else if you know what i mean and sometimes that's valuable but i'm not sure that we see the value in doing that kind of thing you know in pressing on uh to doing something new now is what really is the conversation that me and my brothers are having to try and uh create something uh that is that is of this time that recognizes where we are now in you know, 2020 and is making music that whilst it is clearly the kind of music we would make and we had made, you know, in the eighties and early nineties, it's, it's the challenge is to make that so that it actually recognizes that all of that, all of that musical world has changed All that there's been all the different sounds that have taken place between that and we're now here at this point in time um, and trying to see if we can make something that actually is, once again, unique uh, and, and make some sense. So that's our next uh, that's our next bit, that's our next project, if you like, is to get back into trying to write something and pull something together. Yes. And is that um, is that more than in the pipeline? Is there sort of has there been definite sort of. Uh, material being being sort of written or created and you know the 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 sort of uh looking at things you may not have actually have taken and developed as far as you wanted to previously and moving some of those things along as well that's that you know that's where that all all of those things are coming into play and we're due to go into rehearsal in a couple of weeks time is is how far this has moved along to start and actually pull the whole of that together into some kind of shape yes because it's interesting because there's a lot of little record labels that uh, have appeared i'm sure they've just appeared you know from i don't know there's one in germany new york and one in preston and a few others as well as cherry red records who's the obvious ones who've been sort of archiving and collecting a lot of this kind of stuff because they bought a lot especially cherry red records bought a lot of small indie labels or kind of have gone and sort of managed to get hold of all the publishing stuff. So there is a lot of archive, and I noticed that quite a few people have, you know, like Carter, the Unstoppable Sex Machine, have archived most, and another band called yeah. Bob has also. And so I think a lot of bands have quite enjoyed that process of making mm-hmm. it all sort of, yeah, it's not just all going to get chucked into landfill after all. So so that's kind of quite an interesting thing. And do yeah. you sort of, and with you... And Jerry Red, interestingly, had done the... Uh, had pulled together um, the greatest story ever told and material from around that and Live Free or Die and material from around that and, and released that as as two different kind of uh, albums as well, a kind of collective albums. But that was way back in, I guess that must be in the mid, mid-90s, you know, sort of uh, mid to late 90s. They, they, they pulled those together um, and released those. So it was interesting. Yes, and just la- kind of lastly, I mean, have you sort of found new fans have started to discover you, you know, like people who are much younger, like your children? I, I think in as much as our old fans now have their own sons and daughters who come along and who think that music sounds great, so they're starting. That's they're, Those are the new shoots, if you like, for uh, the, the, the the budding audience for Balaam and the Angel, if, if that, in fact, is what we need. You know, I think I go along and see... Um, I go along and see uh, Peter Hook, and I've watched him and his trajectory from when he started Peter Hook in the Light, 
uh, and there weren't many people uh, at those shows. Not bad, but you know, you'd come from New Order and Joy Division, you'd expect him to be playing big places. But he has gradually developed to having some very sizable audiences, but mostly they're people who are in their 40s, you know, and 50s, and they're there because they like to reminisce and nostalgia is a, you know, a positive uh, and strong part of that experience, you know, and they may well come along with their sons and daughters, but the vast amount of the audience is people who are there because they're now at this stage in their life where they find themselves able to go out again and want to go out and want to see bands. And I think there's still enough people out there to do that, that it isn't necessary. It isn't necessary for us to have to, create a new audience for us to have a big enough audience to listen to the new material or to come out and see us live if you, if you understand what I mean yes and and um, yeah absolutely I, I mean of course I'd, I'd love loads of young people you know I teach young people every day I'd, lo- I'd love to think every single one of the kids who are 17 18 in my school at sixth form would want to pick up find out a Balaam and the Angel you know tune and 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 and, and pick up on that and and start to really dig in and enjoy it, you know. But realistically, the, the kind of music, certainly in the school that I, I you know, I teach in, we, we, we're not necessarily going to appeal to that crowd of uh, crowd of kids, you know. No, but probably there's someone in the far depths of America who's probably listened to your material as we speak. And just well, lastly... Of course there are young people out there that are listening to it, just like I listened to The Doors when I, I, I heard The Stranglers, thought... Bloody hell, I love the Stranglers, they're great. And then I read somebody saying, Stranglers are just like the Doors, you know, and listened to the Doors, and suddenly it was like, wow, the Doors are amazing, you know, and I, suddenly I was, I, was on a different, I was on a different kind of musical journey then, you know. Yes, this is, this is true. And just lastly, what would you kind of say to a you know, kind of 18-year-old self starting out? Because it's, you know, because you've obviously... One of the few people in the world, yeah, well, you know, one of the few people who've done sort of the music world, and obviously have got sort of a lot of experiences. I just wondered what you would sort of think. Oh, that would have been a really good thing to have been told when I was eighteen. Look, you can. I I, I say it every day to young people in the, the, that I work with. You're you only are limited by yourself and what you believe you're capable of doing. So you have to be aspirational. You have to believe anything is possible. And you have to simply just do the thing that you feel is the right thing for you to be doing at whatever point in your life that is. Yes. And I bet they love that, don't they? Well, you know, you'd be surprised how difficult some people find uh, allowing themselves to, to believe that actually something is within their grasp. Yes. Oh, well, look, Jim, this has been amazing. I've got, actually, someone's just knocking at the door. So I better right. go and see it. But thank you ever so much for this. And, right. um, and I'll tell you when I put it out. And um, you can always link it. But thank God, the, the, the wonders yep. of the yep. phone. OK, yeah, well, please, thanks. Please tell me when it comes out. And then I can, I can link it onto the Facebook and all the other social media stuff so that people can have a listen. Brilliant. Thanks ever so much. And, um, yes, I'll keep in touch. Thanks a lot, Jim. Yep. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.